Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us back here on Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister and host of the show. And you can check out everything we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Okay, so my guests this week are Kevin Franks, the Senior Vice President of Marketing, and Kevin Fleer, the Head of Product at D3O. And we're here to talk about D3O generally, but more specifically, mountain bike protective equipment. And along the way, we get into it about, first off, just what D3O is, how they think about designing protective equipment for mountain bikers and other folks in other areas as well, a whole bunch of the trade-offs that are inherent to designing protective equipment in terms of actual protectiveness versus comfort and so on and so forth, and quite a bit about the testing that goes into protective equipment as well. So there's a lot in here. I think it's a pretty interesting and informative one. And before we get into it, though, This does tie in rather nicely to our Blister Plus membership, which, as we've been saying, gets you $25,000 of zero deductible injury insurance if you are doing any number of outdoor activities, including mountain biking, skiing, running, kayaking, and more. Because even the best protective equipment can't save you from every bit of injury, and that can be not only very expensive, but also just it's all easy to fall into a trap where... You have a minor injury, you're not sure if it's worth getting it looked at because it's going to cost hundreds if not thousands of dollars to do so, and Blister Plus takes that calculus out of the equation because it's covered, you can just go get it looked at and have the peace of mind to get your small injury covered or save yourself a ton of money if you have something major. So check that out, there's a link in the show notes, and with that, let's get right to my conversation with Kevin Franks and Kevin Fleer of D3O. Well, Kevin and Kevin, great to sit down and chat with you and kind of do a bit of a rundown here about D3O and protective gear more generally. I think we'll kind of find a lot to cover here, but just to kick it off, can you two introduce yourselves to the audience here? Sure thing. Uh, thanks for having us, David. We appreciate it. Uh, excited to to have this chat with you and, and all your listeners. Um, my name is Kevin Franks. I'm uh Head of marketing for D3O here in North America. And uh, this is Kevin Fleer. Another Kevin. So you'll probably notice the French accents on, you know, when I speak, per se. I'm the head of product here at D3O. So I'm looking after any new product development, any new material RD across all our different markets. So, you know, mountain bike being a key one, but we're operating in, you know, from military to consumer electronics, workwear two wheels, you name it. So yeah, what wide range of products. Right on. Well, I appreciate you both taking the time to chat here. And before we go any farther, we should probably start with the basics and just cover what is D3O. Sure. I mean, <laughs> D3O really comes down to initially the materials that we work with and they're non-Newtonian materials. So it's kind of that complicated terms to describe something that's nice and flexible and comfortable, almost gooey in its rest form, but is able to stiffen up under impact to really get the best of both worlds. You get that ideal, you know, end user comfort and rideability, but at the same time protection. So if you think of, you know, where protection was 10 years ago, where you had to choose between comfort and a hard shell, 
you know, the material like the ether allows you to not have to make that choice and you get, you know, the ideal protection gear there. So, and what we found as well is that in that rest and soft form with the D3 materials that we have, it's also a great material to dampen vibration. So, got two sides of the value proposition here with D3. You've got the impact protection, but you also have the vibration dampening. So, it sounds like magic, but it's really you know, at the core of what we do. And that's just the material science. And then on top of that is all the great design that our team's come up with. And I think I would I would say too, it's it's worth mentioning that. We've been at this for over 20 years now. D3O started back in the uh, late 2000s, late I think we like to say, um, around ski racing. Uh, we worked initially with a brand called Spider, and Spider was in uh, sort of in need of some additional protection that was minimal, lightweight, um, didn't impede downhill ski racers. Uh, so they, they, we partnered with them and <clears throat> developed uh, an integrated protection solution into their ski racing suits. And then from there, really the, the, the sort of the light bulb went on and, and we realized that, gosh, like what, what we're doing could it really has some broad applications across <clears throat> a variety of, of sports, industries and such. So um, we've been at it for a long time. We like to say humbly that we pioneered the category of, of modern impact protection and that, and that today really are, you know, when people ask me, what is D3O, what do you guys do? We like to say that, you know, basically we protect you and your things. And that's really what we're all about. So um, everything from, as Kevin alluded to, uh, everything that we do in the two-wheel space, so mountain biking, motocross, um, MotoGP, road racing, through to uh, now defense working with uh, the U.S. military and a number of other Western militaries around uh, protecting uh, people who are on the front lines. And then probably most recently, the latest, newest application of D3O is um, in consumer electronics. So we are working with uh, a number of phone case uh, manufacturers who are integrating D3O into phone cases, uh, screen protection uh, for those devices as well. So it's, it started, what started with Ski racing has now become, you know, sort of a um, multi-category protection brand that uh, uh, is, again, protecting you and your things. So anyways. No, that's a good rundown. And I think one of the things that I'm looking forward to delving into a bit more deeply in a few here is kind of something that you alluded to a little bit already, just the trade-offs that are sort of inherent to designing any bit of mountain bike protection we'll focus on since kind of that's our main area of focus here on the show but you know you have your you want things that are lightweight and breathable and comfortable for the 99 percent of the time when you're just using them kind of more passively say not actually crashing and hitting things and requiring protection from them but that still do ultimately give you you know good protection when called upon and um i think one thing that is that stood out to me kind of actually having just done a uh, big knee pad roundup that included a number of options that use d3o in different form factors is that we've talked about the material as being 
this non-Newtonian polymer that um, does the things that Kevin described already. But I think it's worth noting that not every implementation or version of D3O is 100% the same. You've got different form factors and different formulations of the material that feel and behave notably differently. You know, they're conceptually similar, but not the same thing. So tell us just a bit about kind of the spectrum of material properties that you kind of offer and how you think about the trade-offs that are inherent to, um, you know, the various trade-offs of stiffness and pliability and all those other kind of things that go into the formulation of those different versions. And first of all, to the question of the different formulations and forms, I think most people think there's just one D3O material, just, you know, for simplicity's sake, I guess it works. Reality is we've got over 30 different formulations in our portfolio because every application demands slightly different versions of it. And then sometimes we even move from foam completely to, you know, more like a plastic form or like, you know, like sometimes we even go into additives where we supply an additive that enhances the performance of a given material. So we've got all sorts of different ways of implementing our technology. Um, and, you know, in mountain bike protection, we've got mostly foams and some of what we call our impact print technology, where you've got much lower profile, a little bit harder material, a lot more breathable. So as you said, it's, it's all about the trade-off. And I think this is the most exciting part of our job is everyone can put on the market a certified, you know, knee pad. There's no challenge with that. It's not very difficult to meet the impact performance. The name of the game is how thin, how flexible, how soft, how temperature stable, how sustainable, and how durable can you make that product and still meet the requirement of the impact certification. So it's, it's interesting how everything's moved from, you know, oh, like we need to deliver this impact performance. This is our, you know, the main thing on the brief. And the rest is accessory. Now it's flipped completely because of how things have evolved and also the expectation from the end users. Impact performance is a given. No one ever talks about it. It's either it meets the certification or it doesn't. And then it's about all the other USPs and all the other trade-offs that we set D3 apart from the competition. So we, you know, we, we, we work towards reducing or removing all those trade-offs altogether. So why do you have to choose? Why not have a thin, protective, sustainable, durable product if you can? I think that's where the formulation comes in play, of course. There's a lot of R&D there to get to the foundation that you need for the product. Then we've got a great team of designers that will work more on the human factor side of the product, make sure it's you know, the best ergonomics and the best user experience. Yeah, and I mean, certainly striving to mitigate those trade-offs as best one can obviously is you know the direction that you'd hope everyone's shooting for at least but i am sure that is far easier said than done and i guess i think to start off i think it would be interesting to kind of have you talk about what you see as being the principal trade-offs that do go into designing a bit of mountain bike protective equipment, let's say knee pads to narrow the scope a little bit to kind of the thing that probably the most commonly worn bit of protection for mountain bikers say. Really, it's it's, what I just said. It's like all about really the 
the, the low profile is key. I think, like especially in the mountain bike industry, your sleeves integration, you've got really tightly fit garments. You can't have this really big pad, you know, bulging out. So low profile is important. Weight is everything. You know, when we talk about pedability, uh, performance, you need to maintain a low low weight. Similar to flexibility as well, so that the protection is not getting into way, in the way. Um, I think that's te- the idea of stealth protection is something that we love at D3O. So almost kind of being protected without knowing that you're wearing any protection. That's your ultimate goal. You know, even though in some markets like motorcycle and GP racing, they like to feel like they've got this huge armor on them. So it just, I guess, psychologically helps them. But in mountain bike, you just want that to disappear completely. Um, so, yeah, once again, there's all sorts of trade-offs there. Yeah, and I think the the one thing that that I would add to that too is a lot of what those properties are and how Kevin and, and the team move through development comes really down to what the partner brand that we may be working with, what their brief is. And as the sport has evolved, as like we all know, there's multiple different sort of um, sort of intended uses or different categories, be it everything from cross country through to World Cup downhill, each segment of the sport has a little bit different need. Um, and so the brands have got that we work with, brands like Fox or Troy Lee or Race Face or the, the guys up at, at ATCA in BC, everybody's gotten really smart about being very specific in what they're trying to design for. And I think that is one thing that is unique to D3O is that, yes, we sell material parts, but really what we do is that's unique to D3O is we work on the front end with these brands, the front end of development as really an, an engineering partner and an innovation partner so that if they, if the brand will set a goal for a certain pad or a certain product, um, you know, there may be a sort of a, an easy solution that we can help them with, but more often than not, we're work, we're working with them many months, if not years in advance of a product launch, uh, from a, a innovation standpoint, Kevin and the team. And I think that's one thing that sets us apart is while we have some, what we call off the shelf parts that they are able to integrate into a, a pad or a protector. We also um, are able to work through custom projects with these brands as well. So if they have a very specific target um, end use in mind that we don't have a current solution for, we have the ability to go in and then work with them closely to develop something very unique and bespoke just for them. So that's a very it's an interesting part of D3O that really probably not a lot of people know about. It's just the, the, the R&D horsepower that we bring to brands is, is very unique and, and different. So worth mentioning. Yeah. And I would like to touch on testing a bit because, Kevin, you kind of mentioned that, well, as you put it, it's not terribly difficult to make a pad that meets the certification requirements to qualify, but that um, doing so in a way that is breathable and comfortable and low profile and so on and so forth is where kind of the things get trickier. But um, 
I think probably a lot of people are going to be not super familiar with the testing and certification standards that are available for pads and kind of what they mean. So can you give us just a quick rundown of what the certification levels that are commonly used are for mountain bike stuff and what the test protocol that goes into certifying a pad looks like? Well, I'll keep it, you know, high level and lemons terms, but essentially you're dropping a weight um, that's specified by the European uh, committee or like European norm, those specific ways onto the part and you're recording how much force gets transmitted to your knee or your elbow or to your limb on the other side. And then the standard dictates that you allow only a certain amount of force transmitted to your limb to meet that standard. And you've got two levels, um, especially if we talk knee pads, you've got what's called a level one and level two. And essentially level two means that you've got twice as less force transmitted to your limb than on the level one. So it's a way of differentiating offerings. And typically your downhill racer limb protector might be level two, whereas your more enduro pad might be a level one. So it depends on the application. So that is what any you know, certification labs in, in the world will be able to test. And there's a, everything is regimented. There's no room for interpretation. You're testing the pad at ambient and normal temperature condition, but you're also testing it at a high humidity, high temperature condition to replicate the hues. You can even certify to cold temperature if you're worried about winter sports. So there's also optional conditions you can certify to. And one of the strengths that D3O has is we've got a fully certified test lab in our R&D center. So we can get any sort of prototype through the, you know, the portrait room and get the pads tested and make sure that our rate, like our designs fit for purpose. Makes a lot of sense. And, you know, of course, there's great value in having kind of a standardized test protocol for those kind of things. But um, a little while back over on our uh, gear 30 podcast, we did a kind of a deep dive on helmet safety tech with a number of different manufacturers over a series of episodes. And uh, one of the things that we covered in that that I thought was really interesting was the some discussion of the fact that, you know, uh, any given lab test protocol can't necessarily replicate the full spectrum of real world conditions that one might encounter when mountain biking or skiing or whatever it might be. And, you know, there's like, just to stick with the knee pad example, there's a very big difference between landing on flat, hard ground, say versus a pointy rock, for example. And so would be curious to hear some thoughts about how you think about testing and designing for the full breadth of things that one might get themselves into on a mountain bike, say, um, as opposed to just the more narrowly and rigidly controlled lab test environment. So I think we could talk, uh, love to talk for probably three hours about how bad the helmet standards are right now. I think there's the limb protection standard are a lot more robust than the helmet standard. I think helmet standards miss a big portion of, you know, the new science, right, that everyone's aware of, but somehow standards don't evolve. In, in limb protection, they are, there's a, a consensus that they're testing pretty much the right thing. The thresholds are, are well set. They're representative. Now, the issue 
I see two is you've got one problem that is using the same standard as motorcycling. So one can argue, like, you know, are you really experiencing the same type of crash on a mountain bike, especially if you're like trail riding, then your motorcyclist pulling off his bike. And probably the answer is sometimes, but in most cases it'll be overkill, right? So it's not necessarily a bad thing for the end user. I think the result is you end up with bulkier products that could actually be acceptable and useful to the market. So, you, you know, you, you you need that thickness to meet that motorcycle, motorcycle standard that otherwise would maybe be half and be absolutely fine in terms of protection for a cycling context. So that's why you've got some new test methods coming out. So Virginia Tech has worked a lot on, on you know, most uh, cycling knee pad testing and helmets as well. Um, and some brands decide to actually go beyond the standard and just test to lower energies. And so we see a lot of that basically. And then the other gaps is kids. Kids protection is currently tested to the exact same standard and methodology to adults. So here again, you know, kids are a lot lighter, coverage areas are smaller. So I think, yeah, so it's, it's a norm. There's definitely improvement to be made. And I know the standard committees are looking at you know, lower energy impacts and also kids protection, which we'd love to see. And that will warrant some new products on our side. Uh, but yeah, let's, let's put it this way. It's, it's a better standard that we have now versus what's on the helmets. Okay. okay. It's interesting to hear you say that you think that the limb protection standards are better than the helmet ones. I guess if, yeah, we don't need to wade into helmets here, kind of too far off field, but what sort of things does the limb protection standard cover in terms of like shape of the anvil that you're striking the things with? Is it a fairly flat thing or do you have, is there a range of different shaped objects to hit with or how does that part of it work? So you've got only the one shape that is dictated. So yeah, again, yeah, you could pick up something that's pointier or flatter and it will get different results. So there's an approximation there for sure. Um, but so yeah, overall, I think you've got a, a standard that in terms of output or the thresholds is relevant to the human body. That's the big problem with helmets. They're only assessing skull fractures and completely ignoring the problem of concussions. And so that's, that's the big gap. So you don't have that problem in the knee. You don't have your brain in the knee. So it's, it's really about are you going to bruise or break your, you know, or fracture your bones. So that part of the standard is well written now. As I said, it's more about surely we should be considering lower energy hits and potentially different curvature of strikers to be more relevant to the end and use in the cycling market. And um, right now, the fact that the cycling markets align on motorcycle, I think even a, like a, a, listen, a listener right now that doesn't know anything about anything will agree that this is a bit of a weird thing, right? Like testing to the same standards those two applications. Yeah, and I guess that point does make some sense that in some ways the sort of it's probably easier to design a an adequate limb protection standard. You don't have quite the same scope of types of injuries that you're looking to protect against. And so that does simplify things for sure. Um, to kind of move on from the test standards and whatnot a bit. Uh, so I would be interested to kind of just have you talk about in a bit more detail about the sort of different um, kind of 
products that you offer in the mountain bike protection space and how the different formulations and different form factors of the D3O materials that you use really differ from each other and how you think about the trade-offs between them. Because like I said, you know, having been spending a bunch of time in a whole bunch of different versions recently and um, they definitely, it's not like all D3O is created equal. As we've said, there are decidedly different variants of it. So um, yeah, it would be interesting to have you go into some of that in a bit more depth. So if we put the, you know, the impact performance level aside and the coverage aside, because that in itself create a bunch of new or different products. If you compare the solutions we have for, let's say, level one, which is the most common type of protection and, and typical coverage, not talking about kids, we really have only three types of solutions that we put on the market today. We've got kind of our foam molded pads that is what kind of people know D3 or 4 and you know that be optimized with pre-curvature ergonomics. It's kind of breathable or you molded holes in it. Uh, we've reduced the thickness as much as possible with a foam kind of platform. So the foam is great because it's comfortable. If you tie your shoelaces and kneel on it, it'll, it'll feel great. You've got that protection feel, like a bit more of a body armor, um, not quite as stealth as some other technologies. So that's kind of your go-to part, be through and then reintroduced two, three years ago, a brand new technology with what we call impact print, where we're applying the D-through directly onto fabric. And we've made the material a lot, or the design a lot thinner, so about half the thickness of your typical foam product. So, you know, really going from 10, 11 mil thickness down to 5, 6, and also adding some, some new benefits like breathability, opening up the geometry completely, flexibility where the flexibility of the part is only dictated by the fabric where we apply the material to so almost limitless um so that's the two but the trade-off is it's a little bit harder so you know some people like that because they like the trade-off and the gain in, in flexibility and breathability some people prefer to maintain that softness element to it um so it's really a preference there um and we i don't know we talk to dozens of different partner brands. You'll have half of them that like that bulky protection because, you know, if you think from a one standpoint, you know, you can't, thicker is better, right? Like, like more protection, you want to see that big padding on the knee. Or, you know, a lot of people feel this way and some others want to go complete stealth, lowest possible profile and just forget about protection. So because you've got those two markets and those two needs, we've got two technologies that cater for each of those. And the third type of um, knee pads that we offer is simply like a thin sheet of foam, you know, rate sensitive, so pull down to our DNA, so nice and flexible and comfortable, but then hardens on their impact. And that's for the brands to decide to go and forget about the motorcycle standards. We don't believe in this. This is too extreme. We think you can get away with just a very low profile, thin, basic impact protective sleeve. And they certify to some other standard that, you know, works for them, so we can offer that too. And I'm, I'm not even mentioning the R&D here. There's plenty of cool stuff coming through the pipeline that will elevate this even more, but currently, in terms of what we can disclose, that's what some markets do. Yeah, that's a good rundown. And what do you sort of see as being, we don't need to go into, you know, particular specifics of upcoming stuff that you aren't ready to talk about yet, but sort of in more generalized terms, what do you see as being the 
biggest potential areas for improvement going forward, at least conceptually, with not even necessarily D3O specifically, but just bike protective gear sort of writ large. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's <clears throat> follow the market, right? You listen to the riders, and I think that's a lot of what we do. And as the sport evolves, so will we. Um, you know, you're seeing probably, a, a, I would say, a wider adoption of protective gear in recent years more than any time in the past. And I attribute that a lot to, well, there's probably a couple of things. One is both D3O, but the partner brands are really doing, turning out some amazing products to where like it used to be, you know, knee pads, you'd have to shove them down around your ankles if you wanted to go uphill. <clears throat> but they're designing products now that <clears throat> along with us that allow you just to leave the pads in place and you kind of almost forget that you have them on. So a lot of what Kevin was was talking about in terms of, you know, invisibility, if you will, and, and low profile and lightweight, I think that's all led to a wider adoption. <clears throat> and then as, again, as the sport evolves and as riders sort of tell us what, what it is that, that they want, you know, we get a lot of feedback now seeing more and more riders on electric mountain bikes, you know? And so that opens up, you know, a, I would say probably a, a bigger need for protections. Bikes are heavier, more capable. Um, people are accessing more remote terrain or more sketchy terrain. So the need for protection <clears throat> will evolve as, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry, will evolve as riders evolve. Um, so I think, again, it's, it's just staying really close to the market, staying really close to our partner brands. Um, you know, it's fair to say that, you know, things can never be light enough. Things can never be, you know, slim enough. So you can rest assured that we're, we're definitely on top of next gen padding, next gen innovations. And, you know, sat down again, six, eight months from now, I think we'd be able to share some of that with you, but there's a lot of cool stuff coming. Um, but again, it, it really all ties back to the, to the writer's need and listening to, to what it is that people actually want. And again, that's dependent upon the type of rider they are. Um, but usually it's just a hey, lighter, more flexible, more breathable. And so it just continues to push us down that path as well. I'd be curious to hear you kind of comment on how things have evolved and how you think about designing mountain bike protection to like with an eye to sort of staying put in a crash and what it takes to make something not move around a bit. And of course that extends well beyond the D3O protection itself and into the design of the overall piece that you're working with, you know, number of brand partners on, but um, with an eye to that kind of stuff and just the design of mountain bike protection more generally, um, how do you kind of work with the companies that you're partnered with to integrate D3O products into what they're ultimately selling to consumers and how do those things all kind of fit together? Yeah, so you, as you said, this is, I would say, 80% down to the partner brand and their garment design and you know the iterative process that they go through to get to the final product. But we definitely have a part to play in, in the ergonomics of the part in the first place. If, if ergonomics are poor from the get-go, you're going to 
whatever you do to the garment, you're never going to get that, that the fit right. So it's making sure we've got the right pre curvature. And you know, as Kevin said earlier, we've been designing knee pads for the last ten years, so got a huge amount of data on what a good fit is in, in terms of that curvature of the pads. I think we what we provide, especially when a custom project with with a big partner brand, is we'll do a load of different prototypes, very rough ones. Some will be 3D printed, some will be just sheet put together and they'll go through wear trialing, you know, sometimes 20 different versions and different pads from D3 or different garment designs. And then, you know, some of those projects can go for years just because of that, that human factor evaluation where you've got pads being you know, written for weeks and um, that's, that's what lengthens the whole development process, but they're absolutely key because... You know, it can look great on paper but until it's where trialed and approved, you know, by a bunch of different writers in different settings. It's, it's never going to be signed off. I guess along with that a bit, particularly for some of the molded products that have kind of a more contour and ergonomic shape, um, how do you think about designing those kind of, I don't know if you call it a knee form or what the models that you're building around look like but what does that process look like on your end so it's not something we revise every two months you know because a knee remains a knee it's like a bunch of data that we work with um surprisingly or not like where you get the most body geometry information is from the army so a lot of it available data because they measure and scan pretty much every soldier so you get a lot of data from that and that's how helmets are designed as well in the first place to get the right fit so we get a lot of data from that. There's a lot of body scanning taking place as well. And then, you know, our partner brands have got their own view of where the demographic is. And, you know, the knee of a 16-year-old is quite different from the older demographic. So we'll adapt accordingly, um, depending on the coverage as well. If the bat is really wide, you're going to need a slightly different coverage on the inside than if you just focus on the kneecap. So there are a lot of factors that are coming to play, uh, but it's using a lot of data that, in the first place from our side. The bit about the army being the source of a lot of that data is really interesting. I actually had not heard that particular tidbit before, but yeah, I guess it makes sense. If they're scanning everybody, then they just have a bigger data set than about anyone else. So that's an interesting note. I don't, <laughs> maybe not a big takeaway from it, but... Uh, thousands and thousands of data points of you know, definite, different ethnic groups, different ages, you know, female, male. So you've got a lot of information there on, on measurements. Um, and if we just go around and ask or where to people in our office, you're quite limited. So you do need to be able to tap into those larger pools of information. Right. You know, everyone's different and different proportions and various just bits of physiology and can't uh, have everything be strictly optimized for everyone. So I think that led us to, one, one insight on, on that was that we need to offer, particularly for, for kids or people who are, you know, have a, a smaller frame, uh, different sizes of the preformed parts that we offer to partners. So you'll see sometimes a, a brand have uh, like a kid's version of an adult knee guard, elbow guard. Um, we've enabled them to do that by offering smaller versions of our pads so that you know, we can make sure we're 
extending the the coverage across a wider variety of people. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I guess while we're sort of touching on kids' armor, um, you've already alluded to the standards perhaps being overkill for smaller people who are just able to put less energy into into something, you know, due to less body weight and what have you. But um, are there more things that you sort of see as being particular challenges or notable differences in designing armor for kids? Or is it by and large kind of the same sort of stuff, just scaled down a bit? Uh, it's, it's just incredibly frustrating because we know what we're putting on the market or what's being put on the market is not optimal for kids. They're just absolutely oversized protection. And that's because the standard dictates not only the energy is probably too high for kids, even though they probably go crazier than the adults, so it kind of balances out. You know, they like better, they go higher, so they crush from higher energy is probably about the same. But one of the main limitations is that the standard also dictates the coverage, the minimum coverage you're allowed to go. So it's not like you can make a tiny little part, and as long as you impact it, it meets the standard. But you need to have that minimum coverage. So what you know, Kevin was referencing or referring to was uh, our compact range. So these are the small, smallest pads we can legally, if if we want to call it that, legally put on the market to still meet the certification. But that coverage, even the compact, arguably is probably still too big for a kid. But that's just the way the standard is designed currently. So what we're hoping to see from the standard committee is not only a reduction in the energy potentially for youth, but also a slightly smaller coverage that's going to favor better ergonomics and user experience on the market. Um, so, yeah, now you, I don't know, if you go to a bike park or if you look at the trails and you see kids, you know, eight-year-olds wearing protection, they just, you know, don't fit properly. They're way too big and just inconvenient, which is also not a great thing for the sport in general because it just gets in the way of enjoying a ride, you know, if you've got this bulky protection and, Kids usually don't really want to wear protection in the first place. So if you make bulky, uncomfortable products for them, um, it's not going in the right direction. So it's work to be done there. That's really interesting. And so is the standards dictating kind of just a, an, a surface area for the, the pad rather than like a, I don't know, would it make sense to have it be instead like a percentage of the total circumference of the pad or something kind of more along those lines so you have a better scaling factor just so that smaller things don't have to have as massive a pad piece is that kind of what you're getting at like back protection standards suck like weirdly enough are actually well thought out so it's it's about proportion so you can develop a very tiny back protector some of the back protectors on the market are the cutest things i've ever seen so they're like could put down a little chihuahua but for, for knee pads, it's, it's the opposite. It's just a rigid minimum coverage. It's nothing to do with proportions. It's just that's what it is. You can print it out and overlay that on someone's knee and you see what you know, minimum size you have. So it's, it's constraining for sure from a design point of view. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, well, yeah, good note to, for something that could be done better. And I guess to kind of bring it home here any kind of final parting big picture thoughts on where you see the world of bike impact protection going or things that you would like to see done differently or i don't know pretty open-ended question here i guess but sort of floor is yours for thoughts on the future 
I mean, you know, I think worth mentioning that we've we focused a lot of the conversation, and rightfully so, around limb protection. Um, you know, we equally put as much work and development into other areas, head to toe, if you will, around a rider. So uh, everything from chest and, and back protection, shoulder protection, um, you know, in other sports, shin protection, um, footwear. So we, you know, footwear is a, a really interesting area for us, both, both in terms of protection and we work with brands like Ride Concepts or Adidas and 510 around, you know, some ankle protection that they've integrated into their footwear. Um, but largely the way that, that we view it just holistically is, is head to toe. Um, so, you know, you can imagine where we may, we may be able to go in the future, sort of above the shoulders. We'll see what happens. Uh, but really, I think it's, it's an interesting to answer your question, what's interesting for us is beyond limb protection, how can we really begin to protect a rider from head to toe? So look for a lot of sort of new things coming from us uh, and our partner brands in the coming months and years. Um, so that that would be probably my, my, my parting thought. Um, and just maybe reinforcing our, you know, our commitment to sustainability as well. It's fairly talked about especially in our motorcycle markets where you know it's maybe not the number one focus when you're burning fuel like that but i know for mountain bike riders it's a lot more important we've got you know some of the uh, the highest you know bio content in our materials meaning like instead of petroleum based raw material we're using you know corn based um, raw material so like all of those things we don't brag too much about it but they are important we know to our end users but also important to the way we source our materials um so yeah bio-based recycled grades so it's you know we we're talking about trade-offs earlier you know you've got this long list of things that are important from a functional and fit point of view and then you add sustainability to it trying to get to the same level of performance whilst you know getting greener solutions so that makes it all that much more complicated but that's that's what's fun so yeah. yeah, I think that's a nice note to wrap up on and covered a lot of ground here just about both what you're up to and the state and kind of considerations of armor design more generally. So appreciate you both taking the time. This has been fun. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. That's it for this edition to Bikes and Big Ideas. And as always, we would appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts to help keep the show going and growing. I'd also like to say thanks to Kevin and Kevin for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we'll be back again next week. Bye, everybody.